the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Redemption for 1,400 years in their mind was God redeemed us from slavery in Egypt. We've been redeemed. Jesus comes along, helps them to realize, yeah, that was just foreshadowing a bigger plan of redemption. Yes, you were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Yes, you were cruelly treated. Yes, for 400 years, our forefathers were held captive in a foreign land and treated as slaves. And they were redeemed by the mighty outstretched hand of God. But now I want you to know a greater redemption. The disciples knew the story of the Passover well, and after today, you will too. Pastor Gary will remind you of this historical event from the Old Testament, and will explain some of the elements that go into celebrating it still today. These elements, though, point to something even bigger than God redeeming the Israelites from slavery long ago. They paint a picture of the greatest redemption of all, Jesus setting everyone free from the slavery of sin. His sacrifice provides a freedom that nothing else can. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 22 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So that's where the word comes from. The Hebrew word is Pesach, and it literally means Passover. That is, that's a literal translation of Pesach. Passover what? Well, keep reading here. Verse 12, still in Exodus 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood over your homes, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So most of you are familiar that in order for God to get Pharaoh to release the Jewish slaves, he brought a series of ten plagues, the tenth of which was the most severe, and it was the death of the firstborn. Every single of the ten plagues was a direct assault against one of the false Egyptian gods. These were not random. You know, when you think about, oh, the Nile turning to blood, what a random thing. No, 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 that's because one of the chief gods of the Egyptians was the god of the Nile. So God is addressing all these false gods because he wants them to see that they aren't real gods, that only he is. Because in the course of the whole series of plagues, even though it was horrific in some ways, ultimately God says, so that they, the Egyptians, will know that I am the Lord. This was not just a way to get the Jews out 
That was certainly the main part of it. But in the process, God wanted the Egyptians to see that he was the true and living God. So over the series of these ten plagues, he addresses their false religious system. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, was because the firstborn of Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself was considered a god. They deified him. His firstborn son was also therefore considered a god. So God is showing that he's more powerful than their false idea of what God is. And the death of the firstborn, which included the death of Pharaoh's firstborn, was this very clear message that there is no true God except the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God then brings about the death of the firstborn, in advance, though, he tells the Israelites, mark your homes with the blood of the lamb, and when I see that, I will pass over your home, and no death will come to the firstborn of your home. Thus, when the Jews started to celebrate this meal, it was an ongoing annual reminder that God had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. Now, when the Jews would celebrate the Passover meal, so again, the mark was only for the original one. You mark the doorframe of your home with blood. Subsequent to that, it's always been preserved by a meal. When the Jews participate in the Passover meal, there were four cups of wine as part of the Passover meal. Even to this day, you go into a Jewish home where they celebrate Passover. They have four cups of wine, and these cups indicate something that also is relative to our story uh, back here in Luke's gospel. But here are the four cups. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. And when they would lift up the cup in the course of the meal, which by the way, many of you are familiar with that the Passover meal was called the Seder. Seder just is actually a Greek word that means order. And there was an order to their meal. They had to, there was a certain regiment that they followed to remember the deliverance from Egypt. And the first cup that they would raise was the cup of sanctification. And when they would say, when they would lift up the cup of sanctification, they would say those words, we were led out. The second cup they would lift up was called the cup of deliverance. And when they lifted that cup, they would say, we were rescued. Both of those cups happened before they started eating the Passover meal. Then after supper, they had two more cups. Okay, by the end of the four cups, they're a little, you know, they're kind of three sheets to the wind. But, um, <laughs> but cup number two they'd lift up, it was called the cup of redemption. And when they would lift it up, they would say, we were redeemed. And the fourth cup was called the cup of praise. And when they would lift that up, and still do today, they say, we were accepted. Now, these four cups actually came from four I will statements that God made back in Exodus chapter 6. If you're still there in Exodus, go backwards to chapter 6. Just two verses I want to read from Exodus 6. And it's verses 6 and 7. And in God's instruction to Moses about the Passover... He says in Exodus 6, verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and, here's the first one, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. Okay, that's sanctification. I'm going to bring you out. You're devoted unto me. And that's when they say, we were let out, when they lift up that cup. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Here's cup number two. I will free you from being slaves to them. That's the cup of deliverance. So based on this passage, they lift the second cup, say, we were rescued. And then he goes on in in, uh, verse 6, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's cup number three, the cup of redemption. 
And then verse 7, God says, And I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And that's the last cup, the cup of praise, the cup of where they say we were accepted. Because God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. So based on, on those I will statements there in Exodus 6, the Jews have four cups of wine as part of the Passover. Now here's what is interesting here. Go back now to Luke chapter 22, because we can identify which cups Jesus raises and what he says in relation to these cups. Because now when you begin to realize that here they are celebrating this Passover meal, which the Jews have celebrated now up to this point for 1,400 years, give or take, Jesus is sharing this very ancient meal, but he's going to give it a new meaning. And it really is the ultimate meaning. Because what God intended 1,400 years before Christ was all to foreshadow the ultimate purpose of Jesus that he is now going to reveal to his disciples. Here's the true meaning of Passover. So in Luke 22, let's keep reading, verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup. Now most Bible scholars believe this is the first cup because it just says quickly after taking the cup. So he's, this is before the meal starts because the context is he's saying to them, Hey, I'm happy to enjoy this Passover meal with you. I'm not going to enjoy it again until I come into the kingdom. Then he takes the cup. So this is probably more than likely cup number one. This is the cup of sanctification. And he says to them, and he gave thanks and he says, take this and divide it among you, like drink of it. Together, For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, now, this is not the communion cup yet, folks. This is before the meal. This is the first cup, cup of sanctification. In the text, and when you put all the Gospels together, there seems to be no mention of cup number two or cup number four, but I'll share in a minute why it is likely that there's a reference in Matthew to cup number four, but it's kind of a veiled reference. Anyhow, he goes on now, verse 19. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, now here's where he brings what we call communion or the Lord's Supper into this Passover meal, okay? He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he takes the unleavened bread. Remember, this is a feast of unleavened bread, no yeast. The Jews had to go through their home very meticulously and clean all yeast out of the cupboards, out of everything. No yeast. Yeast was a symbol of sin. It was a picture of sin. And the whole idea of how yeast works through dough and it rises and just becomes this grotesque thing if you let it get out of control. It's the whole idea of how sin corrupts, sin invades, sin sin uh, grows like this. So it's a picture. Yeast has always been associated with sin. And so what they're eating is matzah, it's unleavened bread, no yeast in this. And when we share communion, it looks more like saltine crackers when we break it into little bits so you can share communion. It looks more like saltine crackers. It's actually bread, but it's bread without yeast. And he takes this bread and he says, now this is my body which is broken for you. You have to imagine that you know for 1,400 years they've been eating the bread and they're not thinking of it related to the body of Jesus, right? For 1,400 years, Messiah has not been revealed yet. They're eating it as part of the Passover meal because they remember when their forefathers left Egypt in haste, the Bible says they didn't have time to let it rise. They didn't have time to add the yeast. So when the Jews first left Egypt in haste, they had flatbread. They had matzah. 
all they've associated for 1,400 years was this bread without yeast just had to do with our departure from Egypt in haste. Jesus says, not really. I mean, it did. But what it's pointing to is my life without sin. It's pointing to my life that was tempted in every way as you are, yet was without sin. So they're having to process this. Okay, we're going to eat. And remember, he hasn't died on the cross yet. So he's, he's helping them understand this is what's going to happen. I'm dying on the cross. My life substitutionary sacrifice for you, my body, my life without sin, just like this bread, without yeast, a picture of a life without sin. Here I am dying for you. Take and eat this bread. So they're eating it. And then verse 20, in the same way, now listen, after supper, notice, this is a different cup. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And because it is after supper, it is clear that it is cup number three. It is the cup of redemption. And he lifts it up and he says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Like what? Yeah, because here's the picture. When they would lift up that cup for 1,400 years, they saw it as when they were redeemed from slavery. Because here's the ultimate definition. When Jesus lifts up this cup, this is the cup he lifts up, cup number three. But here's the definition of redemption. To free from captivity by payment of a ransom. Redemption for 1,400 years in their mind was, God redeemed us from slavery in Egypt. We've been redeemed. Jesus comes along, helps them to realize, yeah, that was just foreshadowing a bigger plan of redemption. Yes, you were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Yes, you were cruelly treated. Yes, for 400 years, our forefathers were held captive in a foreign land and treated as slaves. And they were redeemed by the mighty outstretched hand of God. But now I want you to know a greater redemption for a greater issue of slavery, that you have been kept slaves of sin. And my life is going to be offered to redeem you. The ransom price for your slavery to sin is my blood that will be shed on the cross for the redemption of mankind. That's what he is connecting for them. That's what he's connecting for us. Listen, Paul says in Romans 6 verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin. See, that's our lives before we come to know Christ. We're slaves to sin. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That doesn't mean we never sin again. It means that the bondage to sin and the hold that sin has on us and the ultimate curse that comes with sin has been broken by the shed blood of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and bought us as slaves to sin redeemed us now as slaves to righteousness, and by his blood that was shed, we are forgiven. This is that whole Passover scene here. So you guys are getting this, right? I know many of you understand this, but for those of you who haven't up to this point, but, but this is an important aspect because for 1,400 years leading up to Christ, Passover had been celebrated. Even today, the Jews who celebrate Passover Oh, that their eyes would be opened to realize that the ultimate lamb who shed his blood was Jesus Christ. And his blood has been written over the door of our hearts so that the angel of death would pass over us. 
and that we might have life through faith in his name. And communion, or the Lord's Supper, maybe some of your traditions called it the Eucharist, just means thanksgiving. This is this aspect of Passover preserved. So now you have that whole background of the Lord's Supper and communion and why it relates to us still today and the celebration and remembrance of the price that that Jesus paid in full. And then it tells us uh, in verse 21 that Jesus continues to speak here and he says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table, meaning Judas, the son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this, which I always find kind of interesting that none of them had a very high opinion of themselves that they that they all wondered maybe I'll betray him you know and so maybe that's a good thing maybe they shouldn't have been proud and and like Peter we see in a moment you know he's kind of he's kind of like I never will Uh, but they all kind of wondered who would do that now this is where the fourth come remember I mentioned the the cup of praise is kind of inferred in Matthew's gospel chapter 26 verse 30 back in Matthew's gospel it says that when they had finished the Passover meal they sang a hymn And then they went to the Mount of Olives where they would spend the night. And then we have the Garden of Gethsemane that follows. So that's, you know, that cup of praise is usually accompanied with thanksgiving and singing. And so it says that they sang a hymn in Matthew 26. I'm sure it wasn't Amazing Grace. Um, You know, way before the time. Uh, they sang actually what was called the Great Hallel. So they were the songs of praise in the book of Psalms. And, uh, and that's how they concluded the Passover meal. Jesus here then uh, predicts that he will be betrayed. And Luke 22 tells us, you know, the hand of him. The other gospels talk about how he dips and, you know, exposes Judas. But it isn't clear that everybody else around the table knows that it was Judas because it says that Judas got up. Luke doesn't say this. The other gospel says Luke, or rather, uh, Judas got up. Uh, quickly, kind of abruptly, after Jesus called him out, and the it says that the disciples thought Judas was going to buy more food. <laughs> you know, isn't that a male reaction, right? <laughs> Where's that guy going? Probably for more Doritos. I don't know. <laughs> well, verse twenty-four says. Now, this is like so typical of what we've been reading about the disciples too. Verse twenty-four also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. <laughs> Oh, how how out of place this is. Jesus just gets through saying, take and eat this bread. It's my body broken for you. This cup, my blood, I'm going to shed it for you. I wonder who's the greatest. Are you the greatest? I think I'm the greatest. How did that go down? But anyway, how ridiculous. And Jesus said to them, here's, you know, one little final lesson here. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And John records the whole washing of the feet. Luke doesn't talk about it. But Jesus is like, okay, basically I'm at the seat of honor in this Passover meal, but look how I've served you. And John tells us how he washes their feet. So he's like, please learn from my example that servanthood is what is most important. He says, verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's, you know, speaking future here, um, their hope. And then verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, this is Peter, 
Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now notice that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Okay, now listen, Peter will fail, but his faith will not fail. He will fail miserably, and he will feel miserable for failing Jesus, because he's going to deny Jesus three times. And Jesus predicts this as much in advance. But he starts by saying that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Please note, Satan does not have free reign with you and me. Everything that Satan would like to do concerning us has to first go by the desk of God. When you even look into the account of Job and the horrible suffering of Job in the book of Job, Satan asked permission to torment, and he was given limited permission, but not to kill him. And the whole account of that, well, why would God allow him to be suffered, you know, to suffer Job? Uh, you know, why would that whole thing even, why would that whole book be in the Bible and all of that hey, for our benefit, basically? I mean, I'm thankful for Job because he went through some horrible stuff. And he came out at the end as a man of perseverance and faith who, who hung in there and trusted God. And though his children were killed and, and his family, his wife said, just curse God and die. And he's miserable. He's got sores and he's physically and emotionally and spiritually just at rock bottom. It is a picture of how God will still sustain us and help us in our time of need and desperation. And so was Satan a tool in that whole thing? Yeah, but the bigger picture we know from the book of Job is that God had allowed it for the purpose of ultimate message of perseverance and hope in the midst of adversity. And here as well, Jesus is telling us, Satan does not have free reign with you and me. He has to get permission. And Jesus says that there's going to be some limited permission that Satan is given here. And you will basically be used for a short time, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Right in the margin of your Bible, Romans 8.34 Because did you know that the Bible says that Jesus also prays for us? In Romans 8.34, it says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for a variety of things, no doubt, that our faith would not fail. He's praying for you in that desperate situation you're facing right now. He knows. He's interceding on our behalf. He's praying for us, just as he did for Peter, that your faith would not fail. And then he adds this hopeful statement. And when you have turned back, because you're going to be okay, you're going to come out of this on the other end. When you have turned back, what does he say there? Strengthen your brothers. Go back and encourage them. Don't allow your temporary failure to discourage you. And in addition, don't allow it to go without being of some kind of benefit to those you can use your situation to minister to. Go encourage them. Go strengthen them. Peter, I pray for you. And may the Lord, as he prays for us, allow the different circumstances of our lives to also be used to strengthen others. Just don't give up, right? Persevere. The Bible says that if we don't give up, we will reap a harvest that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Hope is an open, open. 
We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website cornerstoneconnection.cc While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.